This week I'm speaking to Beans on Toast. Beans on Toast, or Jay McAllister, as as he calls himself, a drunk folk singer. Starting out in Braintree, Essex, he moved to London where he ran Frog, one of the most successful club nights in the indie music scene. Once the pub bumped down, he became a solo artist and 10 years later he has 11 albums and a book to his name. He spoke about all this and more, plus the four heroes for dinner, as usual. Once again, links for Beans on Toast will be in the show notes for these all. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. Cheers. Thanks very much for coming on. Just tell me, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, if we start off with your life growing up, obviously you grew up in Essex, didn't you? So if you just I did me, in a town called Braintree. Yeah, so just yeah. tell me about that and how you kind of got into music and things. Uh, I grew up in a town called Braintree. Well, to be precise, it's just out on the edge of Braintree in a, a village called Rain. And it was like semi-detached sort of suburban house, two cars on the drive. Um, you know, grew up riding around on my bike. And then when I was a teenager, I started smoking weed and started playing in bands. I think it's the yeah. short version. Yeah. Um, I mean, Essex was, you know, it holds a special place in my heart and it would always be home. My parents are still there, uh, as is my brother and stuff like that. But personally, I got out, you know, uh, I was pretty eager to, to leave there. And I moved to London when I was like 18, basically, the minute that I could do so legally and afford it I was, I was out of there but yeah you know i'd i guess everybody thinks they're, they're sort of um growing up is there is is normal but i think feel like mine was particularly normal for kind of southern england you know in the 80s and 90s it wasn't it, it was all pretty easy going to be honest mm-hmm. you know like uh didn't have too much or too little of anything yeah just shorts and t-shirt wearing all the time yeah. didn't they? I wouldn't say all the time, but you know, <laughs> we go through the seasons. You know, the sun always shines over Essex, perhaps. Yeah. So, did you start? To, were you in bands before you moved to London? Were you in bands while you, while you were in Braintree? Yeah, yeah. I was in a band called Jellico when I was at school, which we started. At, we started at school before we could play any instruments or anything. We just like. I was growing up. I was listening. I listened to a lot of different music, and I sort of went through my country music era with my dad. And then I got into like gangster rap, which was pretty standard in the nineties, you know, for little kids in suburbia to be listening to yeah. Compton gangster music. Um, and and then I, I kind of, I wanted to be a rapper for a long time. I thought I was going to be, I thought I was a gangster at heart, you know, and it was <laughs> kind of, I realized at some point that that wasn't going to be the case. And uh Started listening to sort of grunge music, basically, like particularly bands like Placebo and smaller bands like Cable and Seafood and stuff like that. And and that was it. We was like Grebos is what everybody called us. We, yeah. uh, me and my mates, you know, we had like nail varnish, ripped jeans, hang around in big groups, smoking bongs at the bottom of the field, you know, down in the park and stuff like that. And uh, and that was very, yeah, we, we was all playing in bands. You know, I used to sing in a high-pitched American accent and... Right. like have a fe- have a sort of fender mustang and uh the um 
yeah, it was good. It was good times. It was, you know, it's, it's, it's quite far from what I do musically now, but it was the songwriting aspect. You know, I started writing songs when I was 16 and I haven't stopped since, basically. It's always been something that uh, when we started the band, I, none of us could play any instruments, but I just said, oh, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be the singer, not because I thought I could sing, but more because I wanted to make up the words to the songs. Basically. Yeah, that was something that... Uh, that, that sort of interested interested me and that you know the band we did well as a band as well like we we the sort of move to london was with the band but we did like a john peel session for radio one and when i was like well, 17 18 maybe um even though i had this awful american accent which again was quite the done thing at the time for like uk grunge bands just to put on this god-awful accent um but we did all right, you know, and we, the gigs were a lot of fun. And, it, you know, it was, it, you know, it was all about just having fun and being with your mates and making yeah. music. We was like the the kind of, um, uh, what would you call it? The actual sort of like, the sort of professionalism wasn't there at all, if you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. really much. It wasn't even wasn't that much about the songs or it certainly wasn't about like the playing or anything like that. It was more it was more about the kind of attitude of wanting to be in a band and and just kind of I think we had a better we definitely had a better attitude than we did musical ability. It was our attitude that took us everywhere. And it was when people did start coming to watch us. I think it was again, it was it was the attitude that that perhaps people were drawn to. I don't know. But, you know, John Peel, like the songs so yeah they must well, have had something to him as well it must have had yeah he actually like rung my house john john peel john john peel let, he rung my house when uh we basically with the band we went into london to dish out our demos and like make it in the big time and one we just walked into radio one with this cd and said can i speak to john peel and they just said oh you can leave something in his pigeonhole if you want and we just wrote a note put it in a pigeonhole and about three months later, I was at home with my mum and dad's house. And, you know, I'd put my home phone number on the bottom of the note. And John Peel just rung my home. And yeah. was like, oh, can I, I'm, you know, I really like the song. Can I play it on my radio show? And then we, we in the band sat and listened, because it didn't say when or there wasn't any communication after that. So we sat and listened to John Peel from start to finish every night for two weeks until we played our song. And I think it might have been a little ploy that he had to get his figures up. Because yeah. like, well, I mean, I, I know, I mean, obviously the man was the master, but fucking hell, we played some shit in that two weeks when we just listened to it every night. We're like, when's he gonna play our song? And he, you know, <laughs> at some point he did, and it was glorious. So, moving to London, left the band. What happened after that? What, did the band split up? The band fell apart. The band then... fell apart. Yes, yeah, all classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, the bass player didn't want to move to London, basically. So right. he he moved back to Essex and, and left me and the drummer. And what we, and I basically got into promoting clubs, started running indie nights. Yeah. And, and like I said, it was the attitude of the band that we were so good at. We was good at the flyer in and we was good at putting on gigs and all that aspect. So without an actual band, Dave, the drummer and I, we just took all the other kind of skills that we'd acquired through putting the band and started putting on other people's bands and putting on club nights, DJing, you know, yeah. and still making all the, where, where all this stuff I'd learned about how to make a flyer and all that stuff. We just like, without a band, we just channeled it into club nights. And I did that, you know, 
oh, for fucking years. You know, we ran a really successful indie night in uh, central London called Frog. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ran that for, you know, for years, basically. And, um, well, years. Maybe it ran for two years. But off the back of that, we also took over a boozer in North London called uh, Nambuka. And, and I kind of got into promoting basically is, is a simple way of putting it but it was uh all done for we basically throwing parties and it mm. was and it is like being in a band without making music just using other people's good music and this was the early 2000s in or sorry mid 2000s in london so yeah, it's like amazing music clubs were full you know there was a, br- a million new brands coming out like and it was like it was just before social media as well it's like when people you know like there was a scene and a trend and stuff like that. People really dug it. And and it was through doing that that I, I was, because I was making money doing something I loved. I, Beans on Toast was created under this kind of, uh, this sort of blanket of like not needing to do it for the money. And it wasn't, I'd, I when I started Beans on Toast, I had no idea I'd be doing it for, for as long. I'd, I'd, I'd been writing songs the whole time. I'd been promoting clubs, but I loved it. You know, I was living... Mm living in a party and we was you know we had we had a free flat because we were living above the boozer we had you know a couple of club nights running it was sweet and so i started writing music and playing gigs but i didn't need the money for it or i didn't need any kind of a claim or anything for from it and and that was where kind of beans on toast was born and again similar to what i say with the first band where people were drawn towards the attitude rather than the musicianship certainly to begin with i mean the early beans on toast gigs i was fucking hammered you know my general rule of thumb was get more hammered than the crowd yeah uh, and 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 see if that's a spectacle uh, of, of sorts because i had no you know i had nothing to lose and i guess that's that's always fun to watch you know so that was kind. It was under that, under that blanket of uh, you know of music and good times that, that I started doing what I do now. Yeah, it's hard going, isn't it? Like I did, I put on two gigs in my local pub, maybe about the same time as you were doing this. I was like mega stressed with it. Like I'd done one month and then the next month, and then I was like, no, it's too much for me. So you try to organise bands to all be in one place at the one time. I found it really hard. I mean, there was a few of us, like, it's weird. My my memory's so foggy of that era, but like, this was, I did still don't even know how we used to organize the gigs because it was way, you know, email was a thing, but it wasn't like it is now. I I, I think it was just like a phone call, you know, get there at five, end of, you know, and there was someone else that was booking the bands. So, I mean, it wasn't, running Frog wasn't hard at all. It was an absolute doddle, you know, it was just like, it, it, it all fell into place you know we just used to turn up every saturday night walk around like i owned a place you know spin a couple of tunes high five everybody and then you know they get paid at the end of bowl out it's like well see you next week you know it was you know like i said the clubs were full and it was like it was just the right time the right place thing yeah what about the the holidays did you, you manage them did you Dave was the Dave who was in the original band mm-hmm. and me and him were running all the clubs together. He, you know, is a fantastic drummer. He started playing, started a band called the Holloways basically. And I was, me and him would, I was like, there's no way you'll fucking leave him to join a band so that I can run the clubs by myself. So I was just like, look, I'll be the manager only because I didn't have the musical ability to join the band. And, you know, they were good. And yeah. so, I mean, in all fairness, I probably wasn't the best manager <laughs> um, yeah. for, you know, we did well, 
But I, I think, you know, they probably could have done with, um, they got to the point where there was probably a bit of business sense rather than the kind of, you know, I put on all the, all the early shows and all that. But yeah, we had, you know, we had good times. Good yeah. times with that. Oh, band. they were cracking band. So obviously then there was a fire at Nambuka. That was that kind of like the turning point for kind of the Holloway splitting and kind of you deciding to start releasing your own music? Was that a kind um, of catalyst? Um, not really. I mean, I guess it did happen around the same sort of time. I mean, Nambuka, I think everybody that lived at Nambuka, there was probably nine of us living there when the place burnt down. And I think everybody was probably secretly happy about it. Well, not even secretly. I think it was like, you know, like at least yeah. no one got injured and maybe it had run its course. I think there's still like an, uh, there's an alternate universe where we all still live at Nambuka, you know, and we're all doing fucking coke every night and playing to the 50 people. Um, so it, we got away with a lot of stuff at that place and it was kind of romantic that it, we, it literally fucking burnt down at the end of it. It was like, and, uh, but, and I guess it was a similar time that I started then putting out an album, but I wouldn't say the two were um, necessarily related. I think that the album would have kind of cut, it was probably in the, you know, in the running to happen yeah. anyway. But now that you mention it, yeah, it was exactly a year after, you know, Nambuka burnt down in December. And then the following year is when, when the yeah. album came out. So quite possibly. The first album was all written in Nambuka. I, I know that. Um, and, you know, apart from the last couple of songs, one of them being about Nambuka burning down. Um, but it was, you know, Beans of Toast was definitely, you know, I was playing a lot of gigs when I was living in Nambuka. Ultimately, I probably played more gigs at Nambuka in the first kind of year of, of me playing as, as Beans of Toast than, than anywhere else. You know, I'd just walk downstairs and play a gig, who, whoever was playing. Perhaps it was a, a, a catalyst um, the pub burned it down. Um, uh, yeah, now you say that. I've never connected the two, but yeah. let's say yes, it was. So obviously, the, the first album, kind of, you name-check quite a few people in it, Laura Marlin and Amy the Great. Obviously, the guy from Munford and Sons, Ben Lovett, produced it. Was that album pretty much the scene who was about then and like all your friends helped me out? Did you record it different, like separate nights or something, and Ben Lovett's attic or something? Like we that? recorded it in what we recorded it in one weekend at yeah. Ben's parents' house, basically in Wimbledon. Um, and I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot of people that that guessed on it that were yeah just friends at the time, you know. And that was just a case of we just hit up everyone we knew that could play anything, you know, be not necessarily because they, they was worth a name check. Um, you know, but just to get, I had 50 tracks that all sounded the same. So we needed as many different people to try and make them sound different as possible. Yeah. It was probably more like thinking, um, but, um, and, and, and writing songs about sort of friends and other bands is, I don't know, it's kind of something I've always done. It's a bit of a cheap trick really. Um, but, you know, certainly back then I was, you know, I was a cheap trick. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was the kind of the, the cards that I was playing. But I mean, Emmy the Great, you know, is a song about that I wrote about Emmy that she'd never heard. And then she agreed to be on the album. And when she turned up to do the session, I was like, I've actually written a song about you. Can you be <laughs> singing on that song? And she's like, fucking LJ. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she did. She did it. But we never got married, but we're still good friends. Yeah. 
But obviously, I mean, listen to that because I, don't, I hadn't listened to Laura Marlin. I'd never bothered to listen to her until I heard you singing about her and then I went and listened to her. Obviously, you need Well, normally it happens people. the other way around. Yeah. Normally it happens the other way around. I mean, a, 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 lot, a lot of people have spoke to me over the years and said they'd found my stuff through putting Laura Marlin into Spotify and my song about her comes up. And that's right. brought a lot of people my way. I actually thought about doing an album with just every every song is a different band name just for Spotify, you know, just be, be like, hey, who likes the Beatles? And like, what about the White Stripes? You know, just sort of like, so you just constantly in other people's searches, like trying to destroy the Spotify algorithms from the inside. But yeah, I never actually went through it. <laughs> Saying that, I did no, release I a song that. called Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... I mean, you you have you've done it quite a few times. You you probably could release an album, but no. I think that the Spotify algorithms are a bit cleverer now. I mean, I released a song called Taylor Swift a couple of years ago, and my and in my head, I was like, oh, maybe I'll you know she must get a lot of Spotify searches. But I think originally it was like more like you search your word and you get what comes up, and now it's like you search your word and there's a million machines cleverer than any humans will ever be deciding what your outcome of your search is going to be so it might be a bit harder to trick them but who knows, who knows? obviously you brought an album out every year since 2009 2010 was writing in the wall i don't i don't specifically know every album because i kind of listen to the one spotify and i just kind of Everything's on shuffle, so I'll go beans and toast and there's like 230 odd songs and it's just shuffle, so I don't really know specifically albums. The next one, obviously 2011, Trying to Tell the Truth, was produced by Frank Turner. I think this is kind of when, I, mm-hmm. when you came to my attention, because I like Frank and i seen you on his Wembley Arena, see the DVD, i seen your wee kind of documentary and that's how I get into you, so... How did the friendship with Frank come about? That Yeah, that was at Nambuka. I think yeah. uh, he had mutual friends with Dave, who was working at Tower Records at the time. And Frank used, Frank used to come to Nambuka when he was still in Million Dead. Mm-hmm. And he'd play at our sort of like semi-open mic sort of event on a Sunday called Sensible Sundays. And he'd play like Neil Young covers and like Counting Crows songs. And everybody knew he was in this like hardcore metal band. And it felt like we was his dirty secret. And then when Million Dead split up, he, you know, uh, he, everybody was sort of champion in him. Because then he started like, right, singing his own songs, these sort of folk songs, and everybody loved them. Yeah. And it was, you see something from its inception, you know, like when the truth is about music is that when something's good enough to go all the way, Nothing's really gonna stand it. It's yeah, it kind of like transcends boundaries. Yeah, it's just like the first time you hear a song that's good enough for you know to travel the world off the back of a song. The first time you hear it, you will know. It's like oh, oh, right, okay. You know, there's a lot of people that try and do it, and there's a lot of there's a lot of times when you can kind of perhaps get a song or a band that isn't good enough, but dress them up in a way so that people like them. But then there's also the first time you hear or see something and be like, you know, and then to then watch it, you know, all of your kind of everything, you know, come true. And you're like, bloody hell, people are going to love this song. You know, they love it in this pub, but they're going to love it in a, on a wider world. And since then, I've, you know, traveled all over and played with Frank. And I've heard him play the songs that he 
that I first saw at that open mic, yeah. you know, playing to thousands of people, you know, and people singing along. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. Since then, since that album, really, you've done quite a bit with Frank. You've went on some tours with him. You played, you played, you played stadium tours with Frank, didn't you? So it's, it's good to get a leg up like that, isn't it? How does it feel playing stadiums? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think... If I, you know, if you took out, if you took out the sort of Frank Turner supports, I think my gigs would be half, you know, half the size that, that they are now, you know, is the amount of, especially in the States, you know, if I go to the States, I can play to a, a, a kind of crowd now that I would, wouldn't even know how to get started out there. But, you know, I've done a few tours with Frank out there and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's, that, that's, that's certainly, you know, more than anything, how I found my audience for sure. So, 2016, I was just reading that, a spanner in the works. There's no guitars on the album apart from the one song, 2016. I've listened to that album. I'd never even thought of that. I've listened to that and it's never crossed my mind. Yeah, there is there is an element of that. I think I've sort of set out to... to to make, I just finished my last album and I was with Dan who produced Spanner in the Works. He's a really good old friend of mine. And uh, I was sort of sat in the pub with him and I was like, I need to do something really different. I'm like, whatever it is, seven albums deep. And he mm-hmm. just said, oh, just, you know, just make a, a, make an album without guitars. So I, right there and then I said, well, you produce it and we'll do it. And we like made it on a laptop with a lot of loops and synthesizers and stuff like that. and. And I was sort of, when I put it out, I put out the first song and I was expecting, not a kind of backlash, but I thought people would be like, oh, wow, like I've done something different. And everyone was just like, cool, good song, man, nice. And no one commented. And I think the truth is, is that, you know, the songs were all written on guitar. And I think the minute that I, you know, I start singing over the top of something, it sounds like a bit, I mean, no one really listens to a Beans or Toast record for the guitar playing anyway, let's be honest, you know. So if you replace the guitar playing with a kind of, a people take it in their stride. And I, and I think that it wasn't, you know, it never, ever, you know, the album went down well, but no one ever was really like, God, I fucking hate that. Or cool, that's most, no one commented on the fact that, it was made on a laptop and there wasn't any guitars in it. Everyone was just like, just took it in their stride of any other, which, you know, I guess I'm sort of proud of that, but um, it was also sort of funny at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just find it funny because I hadn't noticed it. It's weird. The next album was Kushti, and I think this is, around about this time, that's when I started kind of thinking, oh, there's going to be a Beans and Toast album again. So, like, right, at this yeah. point I was waiting for it and that's obviously we get to the like you bring out your album on the, the same day every year on your birthday so was yeah, that it wasn't conscious... any it wasn't really no it was something that happened it was like the first album it was going to be out around about my birthday anyway so it's like fuck it, we'll do it on my birthday and then the second a year later there was another album ready and well, the same thing basically it was like well, the, we did it before it worked the album's ready why don't we just do it again and then when we did it when i did it the third year it was like this is obviously now a thing yeah and it's been as much as it wasn't like premeditated it's actually it, it, it's really helpful and it's really good to have this kind of like a, a kind of organization amongst amongst the managers. i always know i can plan really far ahead 
I'll mm. always know when my album's coming out. I always, it, it, it's, it also feels like it's the completely natural output from how much I write. Like it seems that I churn out an album a year basically so and and with that con by constantly releasing stuff it's like i play a lot of festivals and there's some festivals that i play every year and not many bands get to play the same festivals year in year out and i'm always sort of like dodge that rule and one of the things that helps me dodge it is well you know that there's going to be new songs in the set it's not going to be i mean in one aspect it's definitely going to be the shame or shit you know it's going to be up me up there going rah, rah. but like at the same time at least you'll definitely have new songs and it will it just means that i can I'm constantly writing, constantly releasing, and constantly, you know, touring. Certainly was in the old days, or whatever. Um, yeah. And you know, and it's just, it works. You know, it really works. And so, just like if there was a time to jump off of the album a year train, it was probably a couple of years ago on my tenth album. But it's like I don't know what I'd do. When would I put out albums other yeah. than that? Now, you know, I, and I still feel like I'd be, I'd be writing and. Uh, one a year so it's just kind of like in my mind it's set in stone yeah like i'll always yeah yeah it's just like uh, like and 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 like i said we can book my album tour like like you know as soon as the other one's finished it's just like yeah there'll be an album and just book the next tour you know and being able to book tours that far in ahead, ahead is great for adam who books my shows you know and we can just sort of like and now everything's really like because of that, it's, it sort of makes everything annual. Like I'll always record the album around September time. So if I, whoever I, if I'm speaking to someone about how do you want to make an album, I'm like, can we just book it in for September? <laughs> if we can book it in now, then you know. And 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 there's there's a lot of a lot of benefits that uh, that I've found through you know through being so. Yeah. I mean, because uh, on the flip side, if I didn't have an album or something got in the way, I didn't want it, I would have put, I'd, I'd never force one out. And I've not really promised, I mean, it's a thing that I've done, but it's not like the world's going to stop turning if they don't get a Beans on Taste album one December yeah. or whatever. So it's like, I certainly don't, I don't see it as, as I, it doesn't work for me because it creates a pressure of a deadline or anything like that. It just, it works as a, um, I don't know, just as a sort of, just for putting plans together and, and, and stuff like that. And like I said, now it has, it, it, it's, it's kind of a gimmick, isn't it? It's something to talk about in interviews and people that, you know, yeah. people that know about it, they are, people that like my music kind of know that there's there's something coming. And it's, you know, yeah, it just, you know, it's one of the things that happened, but I'm glad it did. Yeah, because, I mean, that's exactly, I was speaking to a, a guy at my work to, today and he was asking me what I was doing. I said I was doing a podcast. I told him about yourself and I, I mentioned that you bring out an album every year on your birthday, blah, blah, blah. And he's all about, what's the guy's name? And I said, and then I told him about Frank Turner. And he came back to me a couple of hours later and they'd been listening to you and Frank. They'd been listening to you on Spotify. So it just goes of that wee gimmick, really. He's went away and listened. Something to, so. to talk about goes a long way, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this year, he brought out two albums. Obviously, because yeah. you had uh, plenty to talk about. So, Knee Deep and Nostalgia, that was produced by Frank. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that first. Well, that was the album that was always going to happen. Like, after the album before them, uh, 2019, was uh, an album called The Inevitable Trainwreck. And mm -hmm. that was all, like, an album about the collapse of society, climate change, the rise of AI, all pretty, like... Um, 
it was quite a happy album, but it was quite bleak subject matter. And yeah. afterwards, I was like, fuck, I can't write another album about the end of the world. And it was going to come out on my 40th birthday. So I started writing an album called Knee Deep in Nostalgia. And the plan was for it to be a kind of a walk down memory lane and a kind of nostalgic album, kind of autobiographical almost. And and I spoke to Frank because it had been like 10 years since he did the last one. And I was like, look, do you want to do this album? It's kind of, you know it's about the 40th blah, blah, blah. and we had that locked in we was going to record it and you know and if covid hadn't happened that would have been the album that come out and it probably would yeah. have had 15 tracks on it you know i think i'd written like nine songs come january february for the album and then you know in march and april when everything yeah. you know flipped I, I i sort of found myself when i picked up the guitar i didn't really feel like whimsically wandering down memory lane you know I just started writing about the here and now of the pandemic and I was instantly writing and releasing and recording songs I was just like right just like completely in the moment in my head musically and and you know in my head and therefore songwriting and all my songs were about you know the changing world and the pandemic and all that so and these songs so I basically found myself with two collections of songs that were never going to go well together so I was just like, well, fuck it. All the songs that I'd already written, I spoke to Frank and I was just like, it was just I got nine songs. We'll do a nine track album. We'll record it in between lockdowns and, and sort of, you know, via computers and emailing each other parts and stuff like that. And, uh, and that will be that album. And then the other album, I was just, just recorded it solo at home. or just onto my phone basically. And yeah. just, um, and they just sat, and I was like, well, I could just, you know, I didn't want to be a double album or anything. They both felt like albums within themselves, but they didn't yeah. really marry together at all. So it was like, fuck it, I'll just double release. And again, it was one of them things where it was, I, I did it. It was a creative choice. You know, I did it because that was the best thing for the art, you know, was to separate them as albums. But what really happened after that was, obviously for a year of our tour and it's quite a financial blow for a touring musician. And then when it come round to the album, I had rather than having one album for sale, I had two albums for sale and I, and I managed to fill a financial hole yeah. through having through basically being able to sell double the amount of what I, what I would normally be expected to, because yeah. it turns out people, not many people bought one album. Everybody that bought came to my website to buy a vinyl ends up buying two. So my song saved my ass from that. And again, it was, and I didn't set out to do it as like, oh, I should release two albums because I'll get more money. That was, you know, that no, wasn't even because, a part of what was going on in my head. Well, that's the thing, because if you were thinking like that, then everybody else would have been thinking like that. So it's just kind of, you, as you say, you couldn't have put those songs on the same album. So it, just, it, just, it seems natural. Too. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it yeah. was fully for that. It was for the art that it was done, you know. But it just had a sort of a strange, you know, a lucky side effect, which you know got me out of the kind of non-touring hole, should we say? Going back as well, yeah, you've got a book out, drunk folk singer. The reason that I kind of mention this is my, I've got a friend, a drummer. He's on the podcast a couple of episodes before you, Jamie Keenan. He's in a band called The La Fontaines. And uh, on their second album, in order to sell it, they brought out a book along with the album. And it's basically right. just Jamie's stories of being drunk and all the mishaps he's got into within a band. So they then see that you brought out a book, kind of 
with similar kind of tales. I kind of thought that's uncanny. Oh, it's called Drunk Folk Stories. The um, it was what was it 2018? I guess yeah. it came out, and I'd been, you know, I'd been telling, uh, you know, I've been telling the stories that are in the book either on stage or down the pub or whatever for years, you know, they're true stories that happened and the shit that I've been recounting and, you know, through telling a story, it gets better every time you tell it. So I've been over the years, I've been sort of fine tuning these, these stories. And uh, I, I, I can't really feel, I didn't tell anyone like, the people that know me, the idea of me writing a book, you know, I struggle to get for a fucking Facebook post without spelling mistakes, you know, and, uh, but I was like, uh, one of my favourite songwriters, a guy called Todd Snyder, released uh-huh. a book called I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like. And I loved it. And I was, he, again, on stage, he's a big storyteller. To, like, you know, can the intro for a song can be longer than the songs sometimes, which I, I also have a tendency to do. And mm-hmm. I was on tour in Germany by myself doing all these long train journeys, basically. And it was like three or four hours a day on the train by myself. And I just knew that I needed a project rather than just watching fucking narcos every day or whatever. So I, I just sort of like, I thought, right, I'm going to try and start typing these up as if they're going to be a book. And it was weird. I found it, I found the process really easy because it wasn't, um, it, it, it felt like homework or a chore. Like it wasn't being creative. It wasn't like trying to make anything up. It was just, like I already knew it. Yeah, I just had to. I just had to write it down. It was just I just need time to write it down, and I had all this time, so I started writing it down, and then I got back, and it certainly wasn't finished, but it got back, and then I was like, said to my wife, I was like, I'm, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to write a book, and uh, you know, and I gave myself de- sort of deadlines over the next year to. I basically just said I'll, I'll finish a chapter a month, and. Yeah, and I, I, like I said, I found what I, I, somebody else, the editing process was very much like spell checking and, you know, getting all the there, there, there's right, you know, <laughs> all that, all that stuff, which, you know, I'm probably pretty bad at. But once, once I knew that someone else was going to look after that and I just had to get the stories themselves down onto paper, um, I did it. And, uh, and it was, you know, I couldn't believe it. And then my my wife sort of knows a bit about the sort of book and the publishing industry. So we self-published it and found, I didn't know how you turn, you know, like um, a Word document into something that looks, I was really worried it was going to look novice. Yeah, just like, like, oh, this guy thinks he's written a book. But I was like, we found this amazing kind of like, a company that do printing and help you with self-publishing and we, you know like it's it's called typesetting is what it's called to take your format turn it into like a, a sort of book looking font and and it was you know the whole pro- it was amazing and when the books turned up I, I mean I've been released I've released so many albums and I don't want to dis you know discredit my enjoyment of, of, of making an album but when the cds or the vinyls turn up at my house now it's not a huge fanfare because it's happened mm-hmm. so many times but when these boxes of books turned up yeah. at home and i was like and they did look real they looked like something you could see on your bookshelf and i was like fuck you know like <laughs> I, i've you know it, it, it's real and i you know and and it, it just went down really well. I think it was, I think it surprised a lot of people that like my music as well. You know, like it's quite an odd thing for me to do. And it 
on the touring world when people would stop buying CDs at the merch stand. I feel like I'm talking a lot about business, you know, like the business ways of a, of a folk singer. But it's like it was, you know, it was it's a brilliant thing to travel with and tour with something that's £10 and yeah. can fit in your pocket. You know, because people don't, not everyone wants, I don't like carrying bags of T-shirts or hoodies around on tour. I like to travel light. So having a bag of books and coming off a stage at a festival and, you know, selling a few books is is easy. And yeah. it's like, and um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's done me wonders, you know. So what about the, what's the difference in feeling then? See, like completing a book, like saying, right, that's me, I've wrote the book, that's it, done to finishing an album what's is it the same feeling or is it is it something different it's different because i'm so used to the um the making of an album also i find that with mate with finishing an album what that does is um i always write um my, my the best songs that i write are after an album's been recorded and before it's been released there's this kind of like no man's land where you, it feels like you don't have to write song you know you're not there to write songs you no one's even heard your whole album and it's this kind of like glory bit and it's always then with like you know there's i, I don't know it's just like this weird bubble of creativity where you all these you, all these songs that you've spent so long on and you've recorded them in a manner that no one's heard yet and secretly you have another song yeah and that's really nice and, and so albums will always inspire me to kind of write more right. uh, songs and the book didn't do that <laughs> the book was like i mean the book i i made sure i stopped telling them stories or you know to people because it's right. like oh i once did this and it's like we've read your fucking book mate shut up you know like <laughs> i'd be even more of a bore to my friends in the pub because obviously jamie my pal He's, I think they're releasing a diary now. He's been writing a diary for the start of the year and they're talking about releasing that in August. For I think they've got an album coming out then and he's going to do it for that. But he's kind of the same. I think yeah. it's just a creative outlet, man. It's just, he kind of sat in the house and do nothing. So he needs to be kind of doing things like this. And he's, again, he's kind of similar to you. He's really kind of witty and intelligent and funny so it's kind of it's a natural thing to do that well uh, i'll take them compliments and he sounds like a great guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so another thing i read about you I've, I've seen your song album of the day i watched the video of you and your daughter chucking vinyl in your your living room and things like that i read a thing about you that you're not actually that much of a fan of vinyl <laughs> uh, just the yeah, reason I'm saying that is because I've got a record player and I've got hundreds of vinyl and I never can hear it either. Yeah, I'm 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 not precious enough for vinyl. Yeah. I never put things back in the packet. You know, like I generally leave a bit of a mess wherever I go. And like, but as much as I mean, I I I honour it. You know, as a yeah, as you know, vinyl has obviously changed the world and it's incredible. And you know, and I. I love that people want to listen to my music on vinyl, but me personally, you know, Spotify all the way, you know, like just the idea of, you know, just type in what you want rather than pull it out. Just it's more, I think I can generally find the enthusiasm to get stuff out, to put it on. 
It's more afterwards. It's like the yeah. idea of when you finish listening to music, then you have to tidy something up for unnecessary reasons. Um, yeah, there was a, a few when I did the video with, uh, you know, with Ren, my daughter, and, uh, and I, I sort of knew that there'd be some vinyl purists that are like, what are you, what are you doing? But in all fairness, like the the outtakes of because as well, there was a lot. There was some of the vinyl. A, a, a good vinyl from the collection but there's also uh, the, the record player in the videos like this old 70s record player that um is a lot easier on the eye than it is on the ears as well you know yeah. it's not like it's not, not the best record player it just looks cool uh, and it, but when my brother gave it to me and, and it came with loads of like really shit old vinyl that you wouldn't want to listen to and so there was a lot of the some of the video. There was loads of like Ren just like standing on top of records <laughs> and just like smashing up, which I decided not to put on. But there's like there, where people were like, "Oh my god, she scratched it with the needle!" And it's like, mate, you should see the fucking outtakes. You know, it's like it's you know, a, a, a vinyl rampage going on. So, talk us through COVID and how you've kind of dealt with that and. What's coming next once you once we get over with us? Well, I've stopped making predictions on podcasts because uh, <laughs> a few months ago I did a podcast. It was before Glastonbury was cancelled, and I talked at length as to why I thought Glastonbury would go ahead and how it would go ahead. And and by the time it came out, Glastonbury was already cancelled, so I sounded like a, a right tit. So. Um, <laughs> I'm certainly not gonna gonna make any. I mean, I'm as hopeful as as everybody that that you know the graphs continue pointing in the right direction. Um, obviously, we've learned to be a bit cautious, but uh, you know, my heart always falls on the optimistic side. So, you know, hopefully, we'll all be, you know, just back out um, seeing each other, and and then on top of that, hopefully, we can look at you know worldwide solutions rather than just sort of mm -hmm. nation-based solutions um yeah i mean what is there to say about covid that hasn't already been said to be honest um it feels like you know the world is just in a place where everybody's opinions reign free at the moment and for such oh, a, something that's affected every, every uh, something that's just affected everybody you know every angle seems to have been covered you know i mean hopefully amongst all the tragedy there'll be some lessons to be learned i mean maybe it'll be the shake-up that we need to you know to, for to yeah. come together for some kind of united i mean in order to fix it we need a you know it's a worldwide problem and we need you know a, a, we need to be united as a human race in order to fix it and and, and the, the biggest problems that we face as humanity are all worldwide problems you can't yeah. solve climate change in your own back garden and stuff like that so you know maybe there's you know some goods you know i mean it's easier <laughs> to presume that it's not going to be i think it's a lot easier to presume that you know it's gonna you know shit's just gonna keep on hitting the fan and you know a lot of sad things are going to happen uh yeah to everyone but yeah you, you know, need to look in the bright side don't you? you need to kind of have hope i, I you know but i do believe in humans overall i think we're we're a confused bunch at the moment but you know yeah We'll get there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean for beans and toast? Have you 
will you be? Oh, mate, as soon as I'm out, as soon as I can, I'll be fucking gigging like you won't believe. You know, yeah. There'll be another whatever happens. There'll be another album in December. Uh, you know, and there, you know, there's a bunch of festivals that, as it stands, you know, are announced and tickets are on sale, and you know, and I'm on the bill. Um, so, and I think like these. There's it's been a fantastic week for sales of tickets for festivals in the UK. Yeah, like uh, like unbelievably so. Like um, and and I think that says a lot about well, you know what people are going to be like if things are okay. People are desperate to go to gigs. I've got I've got four gigs meant to be coming up in the next few months which I, I doubt they're all going to go ahead. I might get the last one. That's in August. That's at the end of August. I think that might be the one that I actually get to. But if any guys get announced, I'm buying tickets. Can't help myself. You just Yeah, I mean, it could, it, it, again, without sort of, you know, it, just sort of taking the gloves off and just sort of going for the optimistic <laughs> side, you know, like imagine how beautiful it could be, you know, if it was like, if this summer you could, you know, go to a big festival and there not be any restrictions in place yeah. and fucking hell, you know, like people will lose their minds in the nicest way possible, you know. That's oh, and- gee. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. See your song, uh, Human Contact. That's just kind of me. That's just what I'm like in the pub. I just want to cuddle every day. And it's, it's, I was speaking to my wife about it yesterday and she's like, oh, I would still be a bit cautious once everything comes back. I'm like, no, as soon as they say you can go to the pub, I'll be there and I'll be cuddling every day. And you just, I couldn't yeah, be. You've no Harari. Yeah. Who I'm a big fan of the, the kind of writer and historian. He said that if uh, if sex can survive AIDS, then cuddles can survive coronavirus. Which, That's brilliant, you know, man. <laughs> he's a brilliant man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, people will be cautious, uh, you know, for while they needed to. But, you know, yeah. at, at the same time, I, I it, think how quickly we adapted to something that feels so strange like almost at the moment if i see too many people on tv i'm like fucking hell they're a bit close to each other (laughs) you know like and and that's only a year to to undo everything i've ever known in my head so it's like to to actually put it back into place to what was natural surely is going to be a lot easier and happen a lot quicker than than we than we undid it so here's who so he's hoping. <laughs> so just obviously, as I said before we go, uh, the podcast is called Time for Heroes. So what I look for is you're having a dinner party and you're allowed to invite four of your heroes, four of the people you admire, whether they're dead or alive. They could be musicians, family, yeah. whatever you want. So just give me your four heroes and then at the end you'll need to let me know what you're going to cook them as well. Just to pass you cook. off a little bit. Fucking hell, he didn't warn me about that. Right, yeah. okay. Well, well my, my wife, Lizzie B, would be the first person for sure. And uh-huh. and can I bring my daughter as the, like a freebie? Yeah, obviously. She doesn't... She, 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 right, she's, she, she's there just as standard. Uh, fact, you've got a song Tom about Robbins. this actually, haven't you? You've I've written a, a song exactly yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Called, called Taylor Swift. 
yeah. that just rolls off. I mean, like I was going to say that that if you could just refer refer <laughs> to the song, and uh, and the song basically spends the whole first couple of verses yeah. saying all the people that I would like so that's, to, that's, and then the that's last verse. The like, reason where, I should be with my friends. That's maybe the reason where I've got the the idea for this podcast, and I've never <laughs> but it until now. Right, so anyway, so well, I'm glad, at least you invited me on. <laughs> <laughs> at least you invited me on. But I mean, in the song, there's, you know, an infinite amount of people that I'm allowed to invite. Here, you kind of restricted me. Um, but so my wife, Tom Robbins, who's my favourite author, an American mm-hmm. uh, kind of writer from the, from the 70s. Um, and who else? Uh, Kay Tempest. Right. Who... Um, who well, you know, probably the best lyricist of, of the day, and um, mm-hmm. and John Lennon. Brilliant. Brilliant. They're all in the song. Yeah. They're all in the song. And that's if I, I think most people so far have said John Lennon is like, it doesn't matter what walk of life, everybody loves him. Uh, yeah, not everybody, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I saw a website once called like 10 Reasons Why You Should Hate John Lennon. Yeah, but, uh, we, won't, we won't go down that road. One of my mates done that and they tried to kind of talk me out of my love for him. And oh, he done this and he done that. And he was, he, he was a wife beater and he was that. But, as, but then I listed all the good things that he'd done as well. And you're like, everyone's human and everybody makes mistakes. But beating up your wife is definitely wrong. I think yeah. we can all we can all agree with that. I um yeah, I I don't know. I mean I, I haven't watched the Mike. I was a massive Michael Jackson fan growing <laughs> up, like a, a diehard Michael Jackson fan. When I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up as like in primary school, a careers advisor, I said I wanted to be Michael Jackson. So I've not watched that documentary that is that definitely, you know, like that ousts him for all of the shit that he that he's done. Um, yeah, I don't know where I stand. I've not read into the John Lennon being being a wife beater, but um, is he? Was he? If maybe he shouldn't come to the dinner party, yeah. I will invite uh, <laughs> Sonic. We'll have George Harrison instead. Well, right. He was all right. What did, what did George yeah. ever do? We'll have George, we'll have right. George instead. <laughs> <laughs> I think norm- normally people that, that, that sort of died early didn't get a chance to, to, to sort of fuck it up. <laughs> Uh, but it turns out John Lennon doesn't even didn't even sort of pass that. But I don't know about. I, I feel like I I want to stand up for the guy, but I also don't know what, what or who I'm defending. Um, but you know, I was my mum was like a diehard Beatles fan, so I was raised to believe to see the Beatles as you know we worship them in our household. So it's hard to you know it's yeah. hard to get that get that out. Um, yeah, I've uh, uh, put friend. you in the spot with all this then with the, the John Lennon thing. I don't even know. Maybe I've got my wires crossed. Maybe, maybe that's why you've beaten hands just nonsense. No, it's definitely like I said, we did <laughs> it like on a long car journey once. We it, it started, you know, I don't know how we got into the conversation, but it's like I mean, Eric Clapton's the bad one. If you, you know, if you want to find out about some yeah. shit that people have said that will put you right off their music read up on some things that Eric Clapton said because that's just pure evil um, but I found a website that was like 10 reasons why you should hate John Lennon and I couldn't bring myself to actually read it but what I think I'm sure that that was on there and it's you know it's not the first time it's been brought to my attention but um, 
I mean, it's, but maybe it's just the case of you can find whatever you want on the fucking internet, you know. Yeah. Uh, find the, too much information, maybe. So, uh, God, I hope this doesn't come up at the dinner party. George wouldn't bring any of this beef, would he? Uh, so, George would just be dropping acid, <laughs> sipping on the fucking tea, just like, oh, should we get the sitar out? Yeah, man. Yeah. Chill out. So, what, what are we... What you haven't eaten then? What are you cooking them? Are you a good cook? Or is that I'm why you've invited your wife? <laughs> uh, I mean, if we was both there, she would definitely cook and I would definitely wash up. Yeah, right. that is generally how, how it goes. Um, um, but if, you know, if I was going to, I mean, you'd probably end up with an egg sandwich. To be honest. Yeah, that's ideal. I have an egg sandwich the other morning. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. George would love it. It'd be like <laughs> Tom Robbins, and, and saying that, Tom Robbins actually he wrote a whole chapter once about mayonnaise on bread and nothing else. So once he gets a fucking free egg thrown in, he's gonna be happy. <laughs> yeah, it's all right, there'll be no complaints. The, the the food might be appalling, but um, you know, but we'll we'll have but, a good time. Yeah, you'll you'll make a night, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. pleasure Thanks for having, having me, you. mate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch about anything, you can contact me on Instagram at. Time for Heroes podcast or on Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or you can drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com. You can find the podcast in all the usual places Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many more. Please leave a review wherever you can and share it with others, but more importantly, enjoy the show.